Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Please open up, if you have your Bibles, to the 10th chapter of Romans. And what I want to do as we begin is I want to point out what looks like with a quick human glance, what looks like a contradiction in the text. Something that seems to conflict with what we have been studying and looking at and teaching from the previous chapter. We've ended the ninth chapter and we are this morning beginning with the tenth chapter of Romans. So, in order to understand the contrast, be reminded of what the ninth chapter was about. It was a fairly long chapter, 33 verses, and in that chapter, here is the singular subject that Paul focused on and validated over and over again, and it's this, that God is sovereign in salvation. That God in His sovereignty over salvation works like this. He in eternity past, according to His eternal decrees, He elects those that He's going to save. And then He At some point in the life of those that he elects, he calls them effectively to himself unto salvation. So the sovereignty of God in salvation. Then in the 10th chapter of Romans, here's the seeming contrast from a human viewpoint. What the 10th chapter of Romans is about is human responsibility. Romans 9, divine sovereignty in salvation. Romans 10, human responsibility in salvation. In a little bit, that seeming conflict will probably make a little more sense. Let me just read for you Romans 10, 1 to 4, and then I'll explain it. Romans chapter 10, 1 to 4. Paul writes, Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, referring to the Jews, the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Romans chapter 9, God's free and unconditional sovereignty in salvation through election. Romans chapter 10, here the Jews, Paul says, are responsible for their lost condition because they tried to approach God in a way different than what He had prescribed. Just look closely again at verse 1, and here's the first point 
that I want to bring out. It's the tragedy, and the tragedy is this, Israel unsaved. Romans 10.1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. So Paul says in Romans chapter 9, God saves people by electing them in eternity past and then coming into their life in a moment in time and calling them to Himself. That God is going to do that every time that He chooses to do that. No one is going to be unsaved that He determines to be saved. And then in Romans chapter 10, He's looking at the Jews that the vast majority of them are unsaved and He has broken in His heart and He's saying, I'm pleading to God that they would be saved. Do you see what looks like a seeming contradiction there? Let me point it out to you like this. Many hear the doctrine of election. Matter of fact, at least from my standpoint, the most common objection that I have heard to the doctrine of election, the one repeated more than any other objection that I personally have heard is this, that if God elects in such a way, then what is the purpose of praying for lost people or witnessing to them? That it's absolutely a worthless um, academic exercise. If God is going to do it anyway, if He is going to every time save everyone that He elects and effectively call them to Himself and salvation, then why should we even be engaged in the process of praying for lost people and witnessing to lost people? So the question is, is that a biblical response? Is that line of reasoning seem to play itself out on the pages of Scripture. I certainly believe it does not. Let me just give you my story uh, briefly. I've done this before, but let me just tell you just in a moment or two my background. I grew up holding the firm and deep conviction, which, by the way, I still hold as firm or more so than I've ever held it, and that is this, that we have to believe to be saved. There's no question. That we have to choose Christ. We have to put our faith in Christ, that there is not a person throughout all of human history that is ever going to be saved that does not put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has to happen. But the other side of the equation here, the contrasting truth, the fact that God elects and effectively calls those that He elects to salvation, I oppose that truth. Here's why. I could not see in the parameters of my finite reasoning that they could both be true and therefore if it didn't fit within the reaches of my reason I had to reject one of those and so I rejected election. Now today I stand in a very different position than I did many years ago. 
And where I stand today is this. And what I'm saying I believe is the biblical response to what looks like a contradiction here between Romans 9 and Romans 10 is this. That the first thing that we have to do is to admit that both of those truths are in the Bible. The truth that God is sovereign in salvation, that He elects freely and unconditionally. And secondly, that man has to choose, has to put their faith in Jesus for salvation. Both of them are there. It's pretty undeniable that both of them are there. But because I couldn't understand how they could complement one another and not conflict with one another... I had in the past chose to reject one. But what I see now is, at least what I am absolutely convinced of now, is that God is big enough to hold both in harmony. That just because my mind cannot stretch far enough to understand the eternal decrees of God and how that fits with the human responsibility of man and salvation doesn't mean that I need to paint God in a corner and say that he's not big enough to do both of those. When the Bible says he does both of those, they're there. They're both true. And God is big enough to hold both of those in a non-contradictory way, even though they look like it in my mind and in any human's mind, because our minds are finite, and we're talking about an infinite reality, about an infinite God here, that God is big enough to deal with both. So the first thing I believe that the Scripture would teach us here is that we need to admit and accept that both of these truths are in the Bible. Secondly, that we need to pray for the lost and witness to the lost. Even when we believe adamantly and wholeheartedly in God's sovereign, free, unconditional election and effective call, we need to pray for the lost and witness to the lost. Where do I get that from? Well, here we have Paul, Romans chapter 9, without question, and all of the authors of Scripture, 40-some authors of Scripture. What we have in Paul is the great theologian of the sovereign work of God in salvation. Romans chapter 9 is without question the Magna Carta of that truth in Scripture. Then in Romans chapter 10, we have a man broken over the lost condition of his people that says what I'm doing because of their lost condition is I'm begging God to save them. Now, Paul then certainly is not saying, well, the sovereignty of God means no need to pray, no need to witness. I think it could be argued that there wasn't a man that drew breath other than Christ that more faithfully and fervently prayed for and diligently worked to present and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Apostle Paul. Yet he was a man who believed ardently in the sovereignty of God and salvation. So they're not contradictory. They transcend our minds, but they're both truths 
in the eternal counsel and will of God. Paul is an example of that. Uh, many other in the Scripture are examples of that. I'm going to give you a couple from history. It is, I believe, fairly easily argued that the greatest soul winners of history were men who believed deeply and preached explicitly and wrote and taught explicitly about the sovereignty of God and salvation and His effectual call. And yet they were the men that labored so diligently and prayed so fervently for lost people. Let me just give you a few of their names that you will, I'm sure, probably recognize. First of all, George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon. These were two men, two preachers, both of them so powerfully used of God in the salvation of lost souls, so diligent to pray and plead for lost people, and yet these were men that so deeply preached and explicitly proclaimed the truth of the sovereignty of God and His free election. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is very arguably uh, the greatest theologian America has ever produced. Even arguably the greatest mind, intellect that America has ever produced. Jonathan Edwards, it's interesting. Jonathan Edwards was one of or the very key personality in the great awakening in this country that brought about through the power of God's Spirit a revival that swept over this country and resulted in thousands upon thousands upon thousands of souls saved that really changed the culture of that day because of the move of God and Jonathan Edwards is the great theologian on the sovereignty of God in all of his ways, including salvation and his irresistible call to mankind. In fact, those messages that were so greatly used in the Great Awakening came from the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. And there are those that top that list Several that were so powerfully used and the subject matter of most of those messages so powerfully used by this greatest of our theologians were messages on the sovereignty and the free election of God. William Carey, founder of the modern missionary movement, was a man who worked so tirelessly gave his life to carry the gospel to the lost people and proclaim it and prayed fervently for them. And he was a man that believed deeply in the sovereignty, the free election of God. Point is, I believe understood correctly, the sovereignty of God is not a truth that leads us to reject praying for and witnessing to the lost when it's rightly understood. It is the truth that gives us incentive to do that very 
thing to understand that God has an elect people that He is calling to Himself and to understand that the means, not just the ends, He's going to save them, but the means that He uses to do that is the prayer and the preaching of His Gospel. The prayer of His saints and the preaching of His Gospel so that it encourages us to say, man, I want to cooperate with what God is doing and I want to pray fervently and preach passionately and share the truth of Jesus because what I know is at times God is going to use that and send it out as the means by which He calls an elect person to Himself. You see, it's an incentive. It's not a discouragement. So first of all, the tragedy, Israel unsaved. Secondly, the problem, ignorant zeal. Look at verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. Paul goes on to write, For I bear them witness, they the Jews, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Just stop there for a minute. So Paul here, referring to the Jews, affirms that they are an incredibly zealous people for God. But their zeal is misguided. It is an ignorant zeal. And what is it ignorant of? It's ignorant of the righteousness of God. It's a zeal that is ignorant of the righteousness of God. You see, the tragedy in verse 1, Israel unsaved, is as a result of the problem right here. And it's an ignorant zeal. I believe it is safe to say that There has never been in the history of the world or ever will be a people more zealous for God than the Jews. I think that goes without question. The Jews of Paul's day, the Orthodox Jews yet to this day, they are people that orient their entire life around God. Notice it says very specifically that they have a zeal, not just a zeal, but a zeal for what? For God. They make God the very centerpiece of their life. The law of God is the focus of every day, every action, every desire. They are seeking to live a life that is pleasing to God. They are zealous people for God. But the problem was that they were ignorant of something. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. So in what ways was the Jew ignorant of the righteousness of God. And let me just pause right here and say this. You say, Brad, what in the world does that have to do with us? Well, it has very significant ramifications for us. And I'll come back to this at the end in the concluding application. But the ramification is this. We are in danger of falling into the same trap and the same error that the Jews, the religious Jews, fell into. And we need to see what that trap was so that we can understand it and its deception. First of all, how were the Jews ignorant of the righteousness of God? They were ignorant of the righteousness of the righteous requirement of God. They were ignorant of the depth of the righteous requirement of God. And let me just say this briefly. 
God is a God of holiness, a God of justice. He's a God that is absolutely perfect in all of His ways. He's a God that because of His holiness cannot have fellowship with sin. And in His law, God has prescribed a way, a way to stand right before Him, a standard by which we must live up to if we're going to be in a right relationship with Him. And here's what that standard is. Absolute, pure perfection. That if we are going to be able to stand before God in His holiness, that the law demands that we do so by absolute perfect perfection, meaning this, that we have never in any way, at any moment, in any degree, broken even one aspect of the law of God, not in word, not in deed, not in intention of the heart, not in desire, not in aspiration. I mean, everything external and internal is absolutely pure and devoted to God. We've never omitted anything that we should do. We've never spoken one wrong word, never had one bad thought, never had one desire that was selfish or self-centered, that everything has always been 100% for God at all times. That's the standard by which we must stand before God. The Jews didn't understand that. In fact, the Jews didn't think they need to be saved. The Jews believed that they were different than the rest of humanity, that they were a people that were right in the eyes of God by heritage and tradition and through the law. We're going to see that in a moment. They didn't understand the righteous requirement of God and His righteousness. Secondly, What else were they ignorant of regarding the righteousness of God? It was this. They didn't understand that Jesus is the righteousness of God. They didn't understand that the person of Jesus was God in the flesh, that He is the life that lived every moment, at all times, in every way, in full extent, thought, word, deed, motive of heart, desire, intention, never omitting one thing but lining His life up all the time in perfect obedience to the law of God. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Just here's the point I'm trying to highlight with these two truths. It's the fact that a person can be absolutely committed to God. They can be zealous after God. They can be hard after the law of God. They can long with every part of their being to live in a way that pleases God, and yet they can be very, very far away from God. Case in point, the Jew, so zealous, so radically committed, and yet Paul said, they're so lost. He was broken over them. He prayed for their salvation. And what was the problem? He comes to that in the middle of verse 3. Here it is. And seeking to establish their own, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here's... Point number three, the result, religious rebellion. Religious rebellion. 
You see, their ignorant zeal of the righteousness of God led them to religious rebellion. Let me show you those two words, religious rebellion. I'm going to give them to you in reverse order. First of all, their rebellion. Look at verse 3. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They were rebellious. They rejected. They didn't submit to the righteousness that God had established as that and that only which He would accept. They wouldn't submit to it. It's interesting word to me, submit. I mean, if we were to look at the Jews' life, we were to say they were the most submitted people to God and His law than any people on the face of the earth. Orthodox do the same today. Man, they, their lifestyle is characterized by submission, but the point is this. It's not submission that God demands. It's the right submission. It's not sincerity that God demands. It's the right action. It's the right truth. And they were misguided. And so they didn't submit to the righteousness that God had. Instead, they did what? And here's the word religion. They sought to establish their own righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness. You see, what Paul is talking about here is two types of righteousness, God's righteousness and man's righteousness, or the way in which God makes us righteous and the way in which man tries to make himself righteous. And the Jews were so absolutely zealous and committed to trying to make themselves righteous. How? By observing the law of God, by doing everything externally that the law of God said. They were trying to present themselves before God as a, as a pleasing life, justify themselves by what they did before God by their observance of the law. But what they were doing in that is that they were abusing the very law that they were so zealously trying to observe and say, well, Pastor Brad, how are they doing that? How were they abusing the law of God when they were so zealously trying to obey it? Well, it is an abuse when you use something in a way that it was not intended to be used. It is an abuse. Let me just make that more pointed. It is an abuse when you take something that's designed to produce one thing and you use it to produce something that is absolutely opposed to that for which it was created and given. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing with the law of God. You see, the law of God was intended to do something in the life of the Jew. First of all, here's how they abused it. They didn't listen to what the law said about themselves. Think about that. The law had something to say to the Jew. Guess what it had to say? had the same thing to say to the Jew that it did to every Gentile. And here it is. You're a sinner and you need a Savior. You're lost and hopeless unless you receive the righteousness of God. You see, the Jew tried to use the law as a way to make themselves right for, with God and they abused the law because the law was intended to show us how unright they were. 
how lost they were. And then secondly, they abused the law by not following the law to Christ. I wish I had more time to explain that. I'll talk about it again in a moment, but the law in all of its details was pointing to Jesus. And that brings us to the fourth verse. Final statement that we're going to look at today. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So here's the fourth point, the truth, and it's this, imputed righteousness. You say, man, bro, that's a kind of a weighty word. It is a weighty word, but it's really an important word in the Bible. Imputed righteousness. It, is, it means there is a way for the righteousness of God actually to become ours. Not for us to gain our own righteousness, but a way for the righteousness of God actually to be given to us, to be imputed to us so that we stand before God in His righteousness. Not ours. Not the filthy rags of our righteousness, but the absolute perfection and beauty and fulfillment of His righteousness. Imputed righteousness. How is Christ the end of the law? That's what Paul says here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. First of all, I'll give you just a couple ways. Christ is the end of the law in that He is the goal or the object of the law. He's that to which the law looked and focused on and was moving toward. I could give you a lot of examples uh, of this, but I'm out of, really out of time to do much of that, but all of the law, all the types in the Old Testament, all of the prophecies, they were pointing to Jesus. They were shadows of the one that was to come. All of the sacrifices and one of the more pointed things, all of the blood. You ever thought about that? All of the blood that was in the Old Testament. It was everywhere. It was talked about and seen all the time. The blood Moses had to sprinkle the blood on the book of the law, on Aaron the high priest, on Aaron's beautiful crafted robes. He had to sprinkle blood all over them. He had to sprinkle blood all over the utensils used in the tabernacle. He had to sprinkle blood on the veil. He had to sprinkle blood on the people. I mean, it was always everywhere. There was always animals every day being sacrificed, the blood flowing out of them, the pungent aroma of that blood in the air. I mean, it's just everywhere in the Old Testament. Why is that? It was all meant to point to the Lamb of God that would come one day to take away the sin of the world, the one blood that is able to accomplish the remission of sin. All intended to point to Jesus. He's the end of the law. Secondly, Jesus, how is Christ the end of the law? He's the living fulfillment of the law, meaning what I've already said before, Jesus in every way, at all times, in every degree, in thought, word, deed, intention, desire, lived in perfect obedience to the law. And then number three, Christ is the end of the law in this. He's the end of the law in that He ends its curse and condemnation. 
You see, the law has a legal judgment and condemnation over a sinner. It's a legal reality established by the very authority of God who created this universe and set up its rules. The law legally condemns, judges as guilty, and condemns the sinner to the just wrath of God. A separation from Him for all of eternity. It's a legal reality. But Christ is the end of the law. Here's what that means. If you're in Christ by faith, the law's authority over you has ended. No longer can even the law of God judge you. It has no power to judge your life, to condemn your life. Well, how could that be? Here's how. Jesus has already see, received in Himself the full condemnation of the law against sin, so that when you put your faith in Him, His righteousness is given to you, and you stand before God, and He sees you fully in the righteousness, the perfection of the very righteousness of God Himself. How could the law condemn you if you are there with the righteousness of Christ? It's impossible. It can't happen. The law's power over you has ended. You are no longer under law, but under grace, Paul would say. It cannot touch you anymore in its judgment, in its curse, in its condemnation. In that way, Jesus Christ is the end of the law. Over those who do not believe in Christ, the law still has the power to condemn them justly, but for those who will believe, it's ended. It's ended. Now what must I do then? What's the applicational truths here? I'm going to give them to you quick. First of all, pretty obvious, I think, what we need to do is we need to submit to God's righteousness in Christ. We need to submit. That was the problem of the Jew, right? What was their error? What was their ignorant zeal? They were trying to establish their own righteousness and didn't do what? Did not submit to the righteousness of God in Christ. They refused to do that. So the application for us here is we need to submit to the righteousness of God found in the person of Jesus Christ that becomes ours by faith. That means this, whatever you're trying to do to appease yourself to a holy God, get rid of it. Throw it out as trash and filthy rags. Stop putting any of your hope on the fact that you can do anything before God that would commend you before His holy nature. You cannot. You will never do anything in any degree by your effort that God will say, okay, that gives you the right to stand in my holy presence without judgment. Impossible. 
What we need to do is we need to submit to the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus. We need to say, God, I see the righteousness in your law that you have outlined. It's the person of Jesus. He's the only perfect one. And I throw away any hope and effort that I am trying to merit before you and I'm in humility falling before you and saying, I want to receive the free gift of the righteousness that you offer in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Jew would not do. They wouldn't humble themselves and say they were absolutely hopelessly lost and in need of a Savior. They couldn't do anything to commend themselves before God so they wouldn't come to Christ who is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Refused to do it. Secondly, I've already said this, we need to pray for the lost. We are believers saved by the electing grace of God and the irresistible call of God. Our response should be an incentive to pray for the lost people that we know, the lost people around us, the lost people in our families, our own kids, our own spouses, our own relatives, our neighbors, our co-workers, our enemies. We need to pray for the lost. And then thirdly, I want to end with this. Then we're going to see an example of it in living color here. We need to teach our children about the saving righteousness of God found in the person of Jesus alone. I want to say a few specific things about that. We can hear that, I think, and just quickly, oh yeah, obviously we need to do that. We need to do that. But here's a question or two. A question that I am just transparent before you. A question that there's a part of my heart that is reluctant to do this with my own kids, and that's this. What if we asked our children some very pointed questions? Our children that have grown up under our leadership or are growing up under our leadership. What if we ask them this question? What is the purpose of the Bible? What would our children say in response to that question? Would our children say, well, the Bible tells us how to be good before God? Or would they say, the Bible shows us that we can never be good before God? You see the radical difference there? You see, even if it's not our intent, here's the danger. I started this message with this warning that what Paul is saying about the Jew we need to listen carefully to because we have the danger of falling into the same issue in our own homes. And the danger is this. Our kids could grow up, even if we're saved, they could grow up in our home, even if we're diligent in opening the Word of God and teaching the Word of God to them, they could grow up thinking that what this is is the 
way in which we do what we should do so that we please God instead of this shows me that I can never do what I should do to please God, but there is one that's done it for me. That's a radical difference. You see, when we are trying to teach our children to obey, and we need to do that, we need to teach them to obey, but we need to show them in the process that the problem is there is this brokenness in the very core of who we are. And the fact is we are lost and depraved and we are sinners in need of a Savior. We need to realize that we are hopeless unless we receive the righteousness of Jesus and run away from trying to present ourselves at all before God by what we do. Oh, how easy it is for a kid to pick up something different than that. And here's my story. That's my story. I did that. I picked that up. And that's not the fault of my dad or my mom. Because morality was taught in the home. Because we opened up the Word of God in the home. My sinful human nature wanted to do something on my own effort to merit myself before God. And so without even realizing it, I grew up with an understanding that I needed to do what was right in order to be accepted by God instead of Jesus did what was right so I could be accepted by God. That's related to salvation, but we can even take that a step further. That same thing is true of sanctification. Just like it is our faith in Christ alone that brings the pardon because of sin, it is through faith as well that the work of the Spirit flows into our life after we're saved to help us to grow. You see, we can be personally or we can be in danger of teaching our kids that once they get saved, that now the very foundation of their acceptance before God, kind of the roots of them growing up in Christ is their works instead of the very foundation and root of them Growing up in Christ is faith and works are just the fruit, the result of true salvation. That's a radically different thing right there. Even after we're saved, the root of our sanctification is not good works. Good works are the fruit. They're the byproduct of a heart that is truly saved, that is in faith, accepting and depending regularly upon God as the Spirit then flows into that life through that faith and produces the good works in that heart. That heart that is regularly dependent and recognizing of its need and in faith, trusting in Christ alone, not only for salvation, but for the very righteousness of daily living as well. Galatians chapter 3, 2 and 5, I'm going to end with this verse. Here's Paul writing the church of Galatia, a group of Christian people, and he is chastising them saying, you started with Christ through faith, and now you're going back to legalistic practices. Listen, let me ask you only this. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did you get saved because you did something or because you believed in someone? And the truth is, it was because they believed in someone. And now listen to his next statement. Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see that? Now that you're saved, are you being perfected in your day-to-day life by works, by what you do? He's asking the same question there. And then he makes this statement. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, the Spirit is the power that enables you to live the life God wants you to live. Did he who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you and do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The point he's making is that the Spirit works based upon our faith, that it's faith in the beginning and it's faith in the second step and it's faith in the third step and it's faith all the way through. The just shall live by faith. They shall be saved through faith and they shall live day to day in a growing relationship through faith. So we need to teach our children this. We need to teach our children that once they are saved, that what they do is stay in a place of absolute dependency upon the Spirit of God and the byproduct of that kind of a life will be the fruit of good works. The good works will not commend them. It's Jesus and His righteousness that commends them.